Number one. It is the duty of every member. The duty of every member to pray for their pastor and teachers. Number two. <clears throat> it is your duty to show reverential estimation for them, being Christ's ambassadors. Esteem them very highly in love for their work. Third duty upon congregations. Tis their duty to submit themselves unto them, that is, in all their exhortations. Fourth, it is their duty to take care to vindicate them from the unjust charges of evil men or tongue of infamy. And not to take up reproach against them by report, nor to grieve their spirits or weaken their hands. Fifth, tis the duty of members to go to them when under trouble or temptations. Sixth, it is their duty to provide a comfortable maintenance for them and their families, suitable to their state and condition. Seventh, it is their duty to adhere to them and abide by them in all their trials and persecutions for the word. We could go on. Is this a little weird? <clears throat> I agree. Unfortunately, nobody's talking about a member's duty to anybody. Member's duty to fellow members, let alone the congregation's duty to its pastor or their pastors. This therapeutic age sees something like a pastor, more like your own personal therapist, hired coaches, sideline cheerleaders, spiritual Sherpas here to assist you in climbing the Himalayas of your life. As opposed to God-given men who are charged by God on a mission for God and charged to declare God's word. With this consumeristic age where the customer is always right, people have gotten used to seeing the church as they do a place where they go to get coffee. Tell them what you want, and if they screw it up, you let them know. But relationships in the church are not customer-based. Instead, the Bible says that they're supposed to be like family. That's what we've been looking at last week and we look at today here. So whether we're talking about relationships with a disadvantage, let's say a widow a widower, the disadvantage, that's what we talked about last week, or the relationships that we look at today, the congregation to the pastor, and even the slave to the master. Here in Christianity, all of a sudden the relationships are defined very much like a family. In the church we have many spiritual fathers, many spiritual mothers, spiritual brothers, spiritual sisters. So turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's what we look at today. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and as you turn there, I'll just uh, summarize what we looked at last week. Last week, we saw that the Christian's responsibility, or that a Christian actually has a responsibility to the widows in their own family. And then by implication there, we're thinking all the disadvantaged. And really, Paul was encouraging the church to take care of the widows in their own family so that the church wouldn't be burdened or so that the church could be focused on the true widows, or the widows who are widows indeed, who really are in need help, in need of help. They don't have anybody. So there we see the individual responsibility and the church's responsibility to care for the disadvantaged. Today in our passage, Paul turns to other obligations between different groups here in the church. 
Let's look first. The church's responsibility to provide for their pastors. Now, part of a lot of me does not like talking about this because, uh, you know, it seems like this might be driven by self-interest and self-serving. Um, so I do not want to talk about how you guys should provide for me. That's just really awkward. But because we are a church that walks through sections of the scripture, when the Bible speaks about it, we're going to speak about it, regardless of how uncomfortable the pastor might be. <clears throat> Look there, uh, verses 17 to 18. We see the church's responsibility to provide for their pastors. It says there in 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So here it's really clear, Paul's calling for the congregation to care for their pastors who are fulfilling their God-given responsibilities. The point isn't, look, those who rule well should be given double honor, and those who don't should only be given one portion. That's not really his point. He's just saying, look, if the pastors are carrying out their God-given responsibilities, that is, they're preaching and teaching solid doctrine and living lives according to it, help them. Honor here is a theme in this chapter. We see in the widows, the section for the widows, that the church is supposed to honor widows. Here we see that the church is to give double honor to its pastors. And then in the next section, we see that slaves are to give all honor to their masters. This, again, has to do with um, showing reverence in relation to attitude. But it also includes financial support here. So this word, when it says count them worthy of double honor, worthy of honor, when you're counting them of something of that, or counting them of being worthy of it, that actually ref refers to financial provision. And this is clear in this scripture. This is clear in, in uh, the literature outside of the Bible as well. When you're counting somebody worthy of, of honor, there you're thinking of a wage. Uh, you're thinking of financial provision. That financial support is in view comes from 18. Did you guys look there? Uh, there's two reasons for why churches ought to consider their pastors worthy of their wage. He says, for, that's he's giving the reason here, for the scripture says. So first he gives an Old Testament quote that frankly is not very flattering. You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. So there he's going right back to Deuteronomy, basically saying, look, feed your oxen when they're uh, serving you, when they're doing what they're supposed to do, when they're fulfilling their responsibilities. You want them to eat while they tread. Second, he says, he, Paul points to Jesus's words in Luke. So here, uh, Paul is, is, is looking at Luke, possibly, most likely. And he's quoting from the Gospel of Luke. And he says there, Jesus says, the laborer deserves his wages. So we say, look, if we take care of our own animals when they work and our laborers when they work, we ought also naturally to take care of the pastors who work, who labor for your very own godliness. And we know that Paul was a tent maker. So, you know, he would travel on his missionary journeys, but he would be sewing tents um, so that he wouldn't be a burden on these churches. That was a unique situation, but regularly here, Paul himself is saying, if when the church can do it, financially provide uh, for its pastors, their pastors. Um, now, from this passage, some, some people believe that Paul is teaching that there are two categories of elders. We have ruling elders and then teaching elders, because he says there, 
let the elders who rule well be honored, especially those who preach and teach. Um, I don't think that that's what this passage is teaching. I don't believe that there is there are a group of ruling elders and then a group of preaching and teaching elders. Uh, for one, we've seen in 1 Timothy 3 that every elder called to be a pastor in the church, so that would be Jeremy and I currently, we are supposed to be able to teach. But all the elders should be able to teach. But not only that, the word especially here, especially does not always mean a subset of a larger group. Like the example I gave last time, I love gummy bears, especially the green ones. Um, here, this word especially also could mean namely or that is so it would read something like this let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor namely those who preach and teach so i don't believe that there are two categories of elders he's just talking about the elders in general he says provide for them but thinking more about this honoring of the elder did you see how the honor is tied to the fulfillment of god-given duties here that's what it's tied to. Honor those who fulfill their God-given duties, those who rule well. So this here is an honor that's always associated, always associated with the right handling of God's word. And then also a, one who lives a life that is, that is in accordance with it. Okay, so those are the two things that Paul uplifts over and over and over again throughout this whole entire letter. He's looking at sound doctrine as well as godly living. So he says, look, you're wanting, you're wanting to honor somebody because there were false teachers there in that church who were teaching bad things, leaving people astray. He says, look, you want to honor somebody. You honor those who teach the word and those who live lives that accord with it. So in any talk about honoring elders, whether it be me or anybody, you want to say, okay, is this man's life in accordance with the gospel? Does he teach what is in actually the Bible and actually genuinely believe these things? So when we think about honor, always think, okay, who am I to honor? Those men who preach and teach God's word and those who live in accordance with it. Those people are those that you should um, count worthy of double honor. Now, as we apply this to our own church, given that one feeds a cow, if one values a cow and the work that it, uh, the results it produces, I think it's more profitable for us to think about you valuing your cows uh, and not so much how you feed your cow. So here we're looking mainly at the value, how you value pastors, oxen, things like that. So speaking in terms of, of your attitude and honor, things like this, do you honor godliness? I mean, where you know someone is teaching the word faithfully and living a life according to it, do you think, I honor that. That is worthy. You know, one way that you can tell if you do actually honor this godliness and sound doctrine is whether you actually build your life around it. So if, you, if we were to pretend we're all metal detectors, as I am often thinking about us being metal detectors, um, if we all think that we're metal detectors designed to find something precious in, on earth, so that we might strike it rich. Are we even calibrated to search for and honor and to arrange our whole entire lives around godliness and godly people? I mean, is that even something that if you were to strike it, if you were to find that right in front of you, you think I strike it rich. 
Because this here is godliness. Is, is there any wow factor for godliness or godly people in your life? Now, I don't mean wow factor as in you idolize them. I'm just th- saying something you really appreciate. When you find that treasure, you're thinking that is worth me pursuing and laying hold of. You know, many people are wowed and would rather wow, you know, their favorite movie star, their favorite athlete, favorite entertainer, favorite civil servant, right? I mean, let's just say, I mean, a lot of us are thinking about our futures. Let's just say the the investment tycoon, uh, Warren Buffett, were to say, I want to have dinner with you tonight. Would there not be extreme wow factor for any number of reasons? You might, be, you might be idolizing this man who invests so brilliantly. But also, you're thinking, I can build my life around his advice, right? So when you know that he's going to come in a matter of seven hours, you're going to be thinking about all the different ways that you can take your $1, your $100 million, and turn them into $100 or $100 billion. Would you not? You're going to be designing your whole entire life around this person and the attributes he brings into your house. It seems our hearts, if we were to examine them in relation to whether or not we even honor godliness at all, it seems like our hearts are actually far from it. There's very little wow factor towards the godly and godliness. And God help us if we are enraptured with the world's leaders while, you know, hanging out with a man or a woman of godly character who's deep in God's truth and who is a godly person is just all right. Naturally, if we don't desire godliness and prioritize growth in godliness, who would care about feeding the very person and caring for the very person that's supposed to be laboring for yours? So if you value your cow, you're going to feed your cow. Friends, if you're examining yourself and running this diagnostic test on whether or not you even honor godliness or a godly person... Keep in mind that the commodity worth prioritizing your entire life around and honoring is the heavenly commodity of godliness. It alone lasts through any economic collapse, the worst of wars, and it leaves a legacy of eternal significance. Um, Now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, a follower of Jesus... Uh, Here, when we talk about godliness and being godly, we're not just talking about, you know, this guy who gets up at 5 a.m. and is on his knees memorizing the word of God. Or he has this fantastic prayer life and is just generally a pious person. Here, what we're talking about godliness, I mean, when Paul talks about godliness, he's talking about a life lived in glad submission to this very God. He's talking about an honor that includes this awe and reverence to the Lord himself. This is pursuing, I mean, godliness is a life that pursues the things that we were made to pursue in love. God himself. That's what we're talking about here when we're talking about is, is, godly, is godliness even the thing worth arranging your life around? Thinking that when you see it and when you're laying hold of it, you're actually striking it rich. This is a life lived in glad submission to a great and wonderful God. See, God created man to be in a relationship with him. A life lived underneath his lordship here. And so what godliness meant, it was just merely living a life that pursued Jesus. 
But instead, we didn't want God to be God. Instead, we wanted ourselves to be God. We erected our own kingdom, designed our own rules, found the other things to pursue and give ourselves to, think that we strike it rich when we're pursuing, let's say, our very own desires or the world's riches or fame or whatever. But the consequence of setting up our own kingdom when there is only one king is ultimately judgment. The Bible says even judgment in hell. And that's why the Bible says that we are folks who need to be saved. Christ came into the world, as 1 Timothy 1.15 says, in order to save sinners. And so God sends the godly one, God himself, Christ, come in the flesh to live on our behalf. He lives a perfect life. He dies in our stead so that everyone who turns and believes and trusts in him lives a godly life, pursues the godly one himself, can be forgiven of their sins. And the only way to pursue godliness is to have one's sins paid for on the cross where Christ bears the wrath that we deserved. And then in so doing, God brings us into his kingdom and says, I want you to live that godly life that you were designed to live. That's what he's calling for here. Godliness. So don't think when I'm talking about honoring godliness, don't think, oh, what Jeremy's talking about is merely just living a generally pious life no this is a life lived in glad submission to jesus christ walking in those very same footsteps so here when we look at how the church is supposed to honor their elder here really they're thinking honoring this man who's walking in the same footsteps of christ that's the pastor's number one priority to labor to tread for your godliness it's incredible isn't it So the question for us is, do we even honor the godly among us? Well, churches are to provide for their shepherds. That was point number one. But Paul also addresses the fact that Timothy and the church were to care about the purity of their elders. So they're not only to care about the provision for their elders, but also the purity of their elders in this family relationship in the church here. So let's look at the church's responsibility to care for the purity of the elders. Look at verses 19 to 25. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So in this section, we highlight three main ways Timothy and the church was to care for the purity of the elders there as they're caring for them and loving for them. First, care for their purity. It meant protecting their reputations. Caring for the elders meant protecting their reputations. Verse 19, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So what Paul is referring to here, he's just referring to a practice that's rooted in the Old Testament that said two or three witnesses were required to sustain a charge and then eventually to secure conviction. So he's reaching all the way back again to the Old Testament. 
But this verse here is actually really instructive for us. Keep in mind that in the church, there were folks who were teaching bad things, teaching things that actually led them away from Christ. In that gut, in that situation, what's your gut instinct? Where your leaders were teaching things that were wrong. I think the the gut instinct in that situation is to let our suspicions run wild. We throw up our defenses against the elders. Right? They're false teachers. We therefore throw up our defenses because they all are like those false teachers. So that's kind of like taking an alarmist position. If one is suspect, then surely what we must, it's our responsibility to suspect them all. So we allow the injuries of the past affect the future. But Paul here, he gives very different directions. Paul says that the church is explicitly to not take a defensive position against their elders. Instead, they're supposed to take a defensive posture on behalf of their godly elders or even for their godly elders. It's interesting, isn't it? It's almost counterintuitive. He says, look, when you find those godly elders, you protect them. The solution is not to distance yourself from your leaders or to suspect your leaders or to refuse to submit to your leaders. The solution actually is to protect your godly leaders by refusing to listen to gossip. Remember what the introduction was as uh, I was quoting from a Baptist histo- a Baptist uh, pastor from the 17th century. That's where all those quotes came from, the duties of members to their pastors. It was written by a man named Benjamin Keach in 1697. Um, and this is, remember what he said. He says, it is the church's duty to take care to vindicate them from the unjust charges of evil men or tongue of infamy. I'm not quite sure what tongue of infamy means. I think it means gossip. We don't really talk about gossip in that way. But that's what he's saying here. He's saying protect your elders. Vindicate them, actually. Take their side. Now, unfortunately, there are, reason, there are reasons why some of you find defending leadership difficult. You even hear some of this stuff and you're thinking, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. Or at the very least, maybe you're thinking, that's really hard for me to do. Maybe you were burned in the past by leaders. Maybe your trust was betrayed by previous leaders. Maybe your trust was betrayed even by men in your life. And so to defend, to defend the leaders of this church, you know, there's, really di- there's real difficulty there. But nevertheless, if God's word says it, then we have to conclude that this, at the very least, ought to be my trajectory. This ought to be the path that I should try to walk in, even if it's hard. But of course, defending does not mean, okay? Defending does not mean defending without reason. Creating an environment where the leadership is untouchable. That would be a very ungodly situation. This brings us to the second aspect that we look at, how the church can care for the elders' purity. Uh, The church can care for the elders' purity by publicly rebuking the elders that persist in sin. Okay, so you are to protect your elders their reputation. But at the same time, if an elder were to persist in sin, publicly rebuke them. That's what Paul tells Timothy to do. These these folks who are persisting in sin, here he has people in mind who will not repent 
of their sin. In other words, they're continuing to make a lifestyle living in this sin. Look there in verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. That is in front of the church. So that the rest may stand in fear. Now, this public rebuke here that he's talking about, this was just a normal process of what is called corrective church discipline. Corrective church discipline. So uh, Jesus himself speaks about this in Matthew 18. Go ahead and turn there, Matthew 18. If you are interested at all about when a church should or ought to be rebuking an elder or anyone publicly, this here has to very much to do with us today. Matthew 18. Jesus himself, you know, what Paul is saying, just, this just keeps in line with what Jesus himself said. There in chapter 18, verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Already, okay, that's really difficult. So the offended party here is supposed to go to the offender and say, look, brother, you've sinned against me. And you're supposed to call him to repent of his sins. So if he listens to you, you have gained your brother, right? That's, that's good. That's great. That's wonderful. There, there's some sort of sin. And Jesus even has in mind here, he says, look, no, discretion is important. If it's, a, if it's a private sin, you know, one individual, you go and address his sin, right? He has a concern here that this would be quiet. But look there, verse 16, if he does not listen. So in other words, if he's not repentant, he says, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of of two or three witnesses. So still, even though the situation is grave and this guy is not repenting of his sin, let's say I uh, am known to deal drugs on the side. Well, I guess that would be a public sin. Let's say I, I speak verbally abusive to somebody in the congregation. That person is supposed to address it to me individually. Call me to repent of my sin. But if I don't listen, look, your responsibility is you're supposed to bring two or three, let's say, to the average member who sinned against another. So the circle gets a little bit wider, but not 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 public immediately. Because the nature of the sin seems to be so specific and not quite so heinous. Look at 17. If he refuses to listen to them, look, look here, tell it to the church. So right there, if this guy is not. Is, is not repenting of a sin. If he's saying, no, look, dealing drugs is okay. Look, speaking verbally, uh, abusively to others is okay. Killing people is okay. We're supposed to bring it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, so let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whoever, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Basically saying... Um, what we do here as a church when it comes to church discipline, these things reflect the heavenly characteristics of the heavenly gathering. Purity. In other words, if we have to bring some sort of charge publicly, if I refuse to to confess my sin and repent of it, uh, I'm not living in accordance with what God wants. The heavenly family. What our very own maker is in terms of his character. And so the church here is supposed to Ultimately, tell it to the church, it says. Rebuke them in the presence of all, 1 Timothy 5 says, so that the rest may stand in fear. Another example, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The reason why we're flipping around, we don't typically spend so much time in 
looking at a number of different verses, but this can be a controversial topic, um, which is why we need to spend more time on it. 1 Corinthians 5. We look at another case of, of corrective church discipline. So what was going on in this situation was that a man was sleeping with his stepmother and he called himself a brother. The church, though, they were saying, oh, you actually are a brother. You bear the name brother. And so there's nothing wrong with that. And they seem to be arrogant, as in they're not really saying that it's wrong. They are determining for themselves what is right and wrong. And this is what Paul says in chapter five, verse one. It says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. So the non-Christian world, even they know that that's not right. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. That is, they're letting their own opinions determine what is right, right and wrong, not God's. And he says, ought you not rather to mourn, to be saddened by this? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is with you in the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, some people think this is really weird. You know, you're talking about delivering this man over to Satan There, what he's talking about is handing this man over to the realm of the world, the realm of Satan, out of the church. So what this looks like for us is if one was living in unrepentant sin, we would remove them from the church membership. Um, And you can imagine, I mean, let's say one is committing adultery against his wife. What would happen is that somehow uh, someone would find out about it. There, that person is supposed to go to them, call them to repent and believe. If that person still doesn't listen, then more people are to go. And if they still don't listen, then eventually we tell the church. In that whole entire process, a past pastors ought to be involved, right? So many times the pastor, the ones who are doing the calling to repent are the very pastors. Uh, And if they refuse to repent, they are removed from church membership. They say, look, we cannot affirm your, your profession of faith because you might say you're a Christian, but your life doesn't look anything like what jesus wants it to look like just as john says in first john he says look if you claim to have fellowship with the light but you walk in darkness the bible says you lie and so naturally it's it's on us as as shepherds who want to love others to say look you're not living in accordance with christ which means you actually ought to suspect your very own profession of faith but we're not saying we never want you to come to church we would say no we want you to come to church The church is where you get to hear the word of God and where the spirit moves in power and brings people to repentance and faith. There we are thinking here of removing that person from church membership. So here, this is just in keep what Paul says in first Timothy. This is just in keeping uh, with what's in the rest of the old and new testaments is what Jesus taught is what Paul taught elsewhere. He's talking about a public rebuke for those who refuse to repent of their sins. You see how when a church is functioning well, when there are when there is a healthy defensive posture on behalf of its elders. How that should be how that can be a good thing. You're not listening to gossip, but you want to do so, you want to listen with fairness and with equity, gathering all of the, the facts. But really, this defensive posture on behalf of the elders, really what underlies that 
is a greater defensive posture for the very name of God. So you're not really going after protecting a reputation, although you are. What's ultimately at stake is not man's reputation, but God's reputation and purity that reflects God's character. Zeal for the name of God leads not only to protect godly leaders, it also leads to publicly rebuking leaders who refuse to repent of sin. So having a zeal for me, protecting my reputation alone, that is bad. I don't want you guys to do that. But having a zeal for God that leads to leads you to protect my reputation and to love me enough to publicly rebuke me, if the case should ever require, that is good. And if I actually strive for godliness, I'm safe in that environment because I can trust that you guys are going to do the right thing. You're going to encourage me to actually examine myself which many churches, unfortunately, are not doing at all. So in relation to this public rebuke, are you thinking, okay, now I see that it's necessary. I see biblically, at least. It's present. But isn't this a little drastic? Airing our sins? I mean, the short answer is no, because Jesus calls us to do it. I mean, you guys, you guys recognize that even secular organizations are taking public steps to deal with their employees when they're stepping out of line with, let's say, the company vision and mission. So you can take the, the, the um, NFL, for example. In the last couple months, even the last number of years, certain teams have come out and had to make public, um, public statements about certain players and, let's say, spousal abuse. You can think about that NFL player who, who socked his wife in the face and then she got knocked out. You can think about an NFL player who recently was accused of supposed child abuse. I mean, these these teams then, they come out and they actually make statements. Think about the Clippers, for example, and their former owner. The Clippers come out. The NBA comes out. They make statements that these things are not in line with the vision and mission of the team or the NFL or the NBA. And they're pulling, they're firing players. They're firing coaches, firing owners. Sponsors are pulling their sponsors or pulling their contracts, all because that person is not living in accordance with the company's vision and mission. <clears throat> the organization makes a statement, a public reprimand, and maybe even the player makes a public confession. And in all those actions, I mean, don't they show what the company's about? Isn't the NFL, when they're making a public statement, wanting at the very least to show the world what they're about, even if what's at stake is financial repercussions and we know that many many organizations are all about that but i mean when you look at the church and we're not about finances but the very character of god himself how much more should the church be zealous to protect the fame of his great name and so when the case requires make some sort of public statement about an elder who's repenting of sin or a church member who is or sorry not repenting of sin so here, church discipline is necessary, but it is also loving. Some people think it's over the top. Well, we see that it isn't. Some people think it isn't loving, but here we see that it is. Actually, turn back to 1 Corinthians 5 here. 1 Corinthians 5, and I want us to stick our faces in the text because every word of it is really important for us. This is how we organize our lives. 
This is what we see. This is where we see God's desires, his purposes. Even we see God's purposes in a public rebuke and we see that it is loving. So 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, why are they to excommunicate this man? That's what it means by removing this man from uh, the membership roles there. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, there's the purpose statement, deliver this man so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It isn't so that we got to get back at him. It isn't so, oh, this guy's abused our trust and we therefore uh, need to seek out retribution. It's not that. This here is a loving act. It's so that his spirit may be saved. You see how church discipline here can be very loving, even though it might be difficult. In excommunicating somebody or for Timothy in the church, when they're supposed to rebuke an elder who's not repenting of his sin here, we're communicating to the person that we discipline, to the church, to the world, that God values purity just as we are to value purity. And we see there the intended results there. People end up getting it. What's, what's the result when you go back to 1 Timothy 5? The result there of church discipline is so that the others will stand in fear. Now, fear doesn't mean that you're going to fear, um, fear man or fear us. This here is a reverential fear towards God, a God-centered fear. Having been reminded that there are serious consequences for those who don't care about what God is about. And these are weighty matters. These are matters that are not, not to be entered into lightly, not to be carried out carelessly, because in verse 21, he says there, he says, in the presence of God. Look, this is, this is so important. He's re- reminded, he's reminding Paul of, or sorry, he's reminding Timothy of who they stand underneath. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to do these things. Keep these rules without prejudging or not rushing into things. Do nothing from partiality or make sure that our judgments are fair. And we do all these things underneath a holy God who sees all in the presence of God and Christ and of the elect angels, the heavenly beings. So when we do this, if the case requires, we show that we actually love the elders of the church. We love the purity of God. We are to protect the reputation of elders, but never at the expense of holiness and purity. We are to protect the reputation of elders and one another, but never at the expense of holiness and purity. Those are the first two ways that the church can care for its elders. The third way is more of a preemptive strike. Verse 22. He just simply says, don't be hasty to ordain elders. There's false teachers. If we are hasty in in, uh, installing elders or calling men to be elders, then naturally... What, what could end up happening is that these men can end up being just like those men because we're making poor judgments. We're not letting time test and prove who the godly people are. So practically what this means is we are to let time simply do the work of testing and sifting others. So some character issues, you know, they're immediately apparent. Other character issues, they take a while to work its way out to the surface. That's why he says what he does in 24 and 25. Both good works and sin those things can be apparent, but let time do the test, its test, and reveal what truly is good and what is wrong. Let it reveal one's true character. If one is not, if one is hasty in installing elders, 
then eventually the man, the elder, or the church could be implicated in the sin. That's what he means there when he says share in, in the sin. And it's why he says keep yourself pure. So, so far we've been looking at the family, familial responsibilities, the obligations that we Christians have to one another, whether it be to widows last week and then elders. Next, he draws our attention to the slave's obligation to his or her master. This is point number three. First, we saw um, that the congregation is to be protective of its elders. They are supposed to provide. That's point number one, provide for its elders. Second, they're supposed to protect the purity of the elders. And then third, we look at the responsibility of the Christian slave to his master. Look there in verse number one of chapter six. It says, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now here, many people note that it's interesting that Paul is not overturning uh, the systemic injustice in relation to slavery. It was true that slavery was different than, let's say, the type of slavery that America propagated for many, many centuries. It is true. So somebody could sell themselves into indentured servitude. So I could sell myself to Mickle and work for him because I'm poor. And if I don't work, I'm going to die. I even could, uh, underneath a good master, be encouraged to pursue um, multiple so-called degrees. So there are, there's evidence where slaves were doctors uh, and their masters would encourage them to do this. Slaves also were paid. And then if I got enough money, what I could do is actually go and buy my freedom. That was the positive side of slavery back then, if you could even call it positive. Regardless, um, it's an unfortunate and oftentimes sinful systemic injustices going on. Um, And slaves also during that time were indeed abused. Uh, But it's interesting here that while Paul is speaking about slavery, his gut instinct is not saying, look, you have an obligation, rebel, lead a revolt, overturn the Roman system, labor for social justice. That's not the first obligation that comes to mind. He says, look, your obligation is to consider your masters worthy, not just of honor, but all honor. Consider them worthy of all honor. I mean, the temptation we would have had if we were underneath an unjust, non-Christian master was to stew in hatred and bitterness, right? And then on the flip side, if you are serving a Christian master, let's say, your temptation might be to disrespect him and take advantage of him and his kindness by because you're a Christian. You say, oh, he's a Christian. He's my brother. He's not going to care if I sort of slough, slough off some work. Well, that seems to be what some of the Christians were doing. They were, t- they were disrespecting their employers on the ground that or because they're brothers. But he says there, he says, look, if both parties are believing, then the quality of work by the employed must be all the better. Paul had already said this to a particular church in Ephesians 6 verses uh, 5 to 8. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters without fear and trembling. 
Now that's a blanket command. He even tells slaves to do that in 1 Peter. A blanket command, even in the face of unjust masters and injustice, he says, submit to them because you're following Jesus Christ's example. Even in the face of injustice, yet he walked quietly to the cross and suffered. So in Ephesians, he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. But, but listen to how he talks about it. As you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, not ultimately servants of your earthly masters, but servants of the Lord up there in heaven, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So to disrespect an earthly master by sloughing off work is not pleasing to Jesus, Paul says. But it's interesting, we know from other texts that uh, the slave wasn't the only one who was supposed to regard his relationships with other Christians as fundamentally different. So there, if a brother is working for another brother, even as a slave, he says, look, you, you need to, to reconsider how you, how you understand this. But so was the master. And this is where I think we see here that Paul is clearly advocating that um, that the, the understanding of master and slave, he's, he's advocating that this understanding would be uh, turned over. So you look over at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. So there that Christian master is supposed to think fundamentally that this person is not my slave. But he's my brother. He says, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is the Lord over all. So forget this understanding of master and slave. There is no partiality with him. We also see this in the book of Philemon. It's a small letter. You don't have to turn there now. But the situation was that Philemon was a slave or sorry, Onesimus was a slave of a man named Philemon. And what Onesimus had done is he had stolen something from Philemon and had run away to Rome. And of all places, there while he's going there to hang out with maybe his other slaves uh, and other thieves, he was converted to Christ. And eventually, somehow, he gets hooked up with Paul and ends up helping him. And Paul writes this beautiful letter wanting Philemon to take back Onesimus, even though Onesimus was the guilty party. And he says, look, you guys... Or be reconciled one another. He says, I plead to you now, no longer look at Onesimus as a slave, he says, but more than a slave as a beloved brother. So even there, the master is supposed to, now that he's a Christian, he's supposed to see this relationship as fundamentally familial, not economical, but there's, there's a family here, beloved brother where one gives himself to another and the other one is to labor faithfully giving honor and respect to one's very own master it's amazing how sharing the same faith and the same lord is supposed to transform the way a slave considers his master and the way that the master considers his slave or as we apply it today how an employer considers his employee and how the employee considers his employer these are beloved and they are brothers. And of course, surveying the rest of the chapter, the fact 
that Jesus is Lord over all and Savior of us all changes the way we are to supposed to consider one another here. Again, spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and brothers and sisters. So for us as First Baptist Church, here it's, it's our responsibility to strive to give honor and respect where it is due. Fundamentally, seeing one another as redeemed people who are made in the very image of God. And so I give you honor. Even with a slave is supposed to is finding it difficult to respect and let's say uh, give honor to his master. He's supposed to fundamentally see them as a redeemed master, one who's made in the very image of God, who is worthy of dignity and honor. So to conclude, you guys see why this is so important to see each other as family members, giving each other honor and respect. Look at chapter six, verse one of first Timothy. Why is it that all honor is to be given to the master? Double honor to the pastor. Honor to the widow. It is so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That's what's ultimate here in in church family obligations, ultimately. Throughout the letter, he's aiming at godly doctrine. is doctrine that lines up with the Bible. He's talking, thinking about godly living. He's thinking about living that lines up with, with sound doctrine. And those two things we're supposed to be pushing and striving towards and laboring after. Sound doctrine and lives that accord with it. And even the ways in which that we flush this out here as a family, those, the way that we work this out goes towards protecting those very things. Sound doctrine, the name of God, and his holiness and his character that's being worked out in his people's lives. That's what that's that's really here. What's at stake in caring for elders, caring for widows, slaves, honoring their masters. And I pray that as we work things out, that we, too, would aim for the protection of sound doctrine and godly living as we are a church that is to uphold the truth. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, how awesome is it that when you save us, you don't save us and define us, let's say, as merely slaves or soldiers, and that's it, as if we can't get to know our great and wonderful master. But yet, Lord, you bring us into a family and you adopt us. So you are our father and so Christ is our brother. Lord, the ways in which you care for the disadvantaged, we pray, Lord, that we would care for the disadvantaged. The ways in which you care for sound doctrine and godly living, so, Lord, we pray that we would prize the godly amongst us and godly living. And the ways even in which Jesus Christ submitted himself to the Roman and Jewish authorities, the very ones who killed him. Father, we pray that we would follow after Jesus and do the same thing so that Christ would be exalted. Your great name protected and the fame of your name be spread to the ends of the earth. Father, we pray that we would learn to see one another with big hearts. That we would walk in the same footsteps as Jesus did, just as he cared for his mother and the disadvantaged and the apostles. So we might do the same. Help us, we pray, by the Spirit. Help us know how we ought to love one another and care for one another, even our very own elders. We pray these things for your name and for your glory. Amen.